Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 190 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a landscape photographer who has been in the game for quite a long time. Gary Crabb found himself welcomed into the landscape photography world by surprise when he decided to quit his job as a breakfast cook and work for Galen Rowell as his photo library curator. What ensued was an unexpected lifelong journey as a landscape photographer. Gary is an award-winning photographer and author living in the San Francisco Bay Area. He has seven published books to his credit as principal photographer, the last two of which he also authored. His most recent book, Photographing California, Volume 1, North, won the prestigious IBPA Benjamin Franklin Gold Medal Award for Best Regional Title. Gary Ann and myself discussed some really interesting topics this week, including his journey into photography, what it was like to work with Galen Rowell, the realities of making it as a professional photographer, image licensing, photo selection and portfolio development, competitiveness in landscape photography, and a lot more. Over on Patreon this week, Gary and I discuss his challenges with mental health, a topic that's been getting a lot of attention lately in light of COVID. Stick around to the end of the show where I will be announcing a nice giveaway for listeners. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Gary Crabb, it is so cool to finally get to speak with you on the podcast. Oh, I I think... I'm the one that's having a bit of a cooler experience here. (laughs) And let me just jump right in and say, I am so impressed by what you have done with the podcast, growing it, the audience and the interviews that you've done. I, you know, from all my experience, I think you're hitting this out of the ballpark and it is my honor to be here with you. So kudos to you. Thank you so much. I re- I really appreciate it, man. It's a it's a labor of love, I guess you could say. <laughs> I imagine it is, but it's really doing just an incredible, great thing for the landscape photography community. And as you say, expanding outward a little bit. Yeah, definitely. That's um, that's uh, I think that's I think that we all need a little bit of that in our lives, right? You know, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, for people that are unfortunate enough to not know who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this wild and crazy ride that we call landscape photography. Wow. So about myself, let's see, I am just cresting my mid fifties right now. And I've been doing photography since I was about 19, maybe 20. I took my one and only formal education class was as a black and white photography 101 course um, at Humboldt State University where I was going to school. And that was literally learning how to develop black and white film and processing it with papers and stuff like that. And other than that, my total background experience prior to that moment was I was a breakfast cook and I was so sick of cooking every, you know, waking up at five or six in the morning to cook and go to these different jobs that I wound up looking for any job I could find. And I wound up working for a photographer and I know we'll touch base on that soon. Um, and I spent a decade working, um, Uh, running an image library. And then I jumped off and transitioned. I became a stay-at-home dad. And with that, I wound up working on, I think I called it a period of 
two kids and seven books over 14 years. And so that was the kind of Fourier into just having gone from no idea that I would ever be a photographer to making a full-time living at it. I, I did not ever start out in my life, never had the moment that said, ooh, I want to be a photographer or ooh, I want to be a professional photographer. Neither of those things ever happened in my life, but that's the way the dice rolled out. So Yeah, and so do you still consider yourself a full-time professional? Uh, well, given this COVID year, uh, <laughs> has been a little on the strange side. So actually, uh, I was all set. I was wrapping up work with several different clients. I had a really high-end private corporate workshop that I was going to be doing on March 17th. And then I was going to go off and just shoot around the entire West for maybe about two months because I hadn't oh been God. on the road very much. And the whole thing came crashing down. Ugh. And so now this year, I mean, I, I've still been lucky to, you know, make some sales and work with some clients. But this, it became a little bit more of a chance to like, okay, I, I'm lucky that I don't need to scramble for every dime. And sure. so when when this all kind of fell apart, now, you know, I lost like tens of thousands of dollars of potential income and workshops, you know, like a snap. Um, and so for that, I just decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to throw my feet up and just relax and take a little bit of a vacation. So I don't know whether I'm in semi-retirement or... I'm on a sabbatical. I quite haven't decided. And every time I think I'm just about ready to dive right in on something, you know, something else has come along and messed up my calendar and stuff. So at this point, all of 2020 is t seeming to be a total freaking bust. The last time I had been out in the field photographing for um, any serious thing was a year ago. And at this point, it looks like it's not going to happen again for me until January. So oh my God. really tough. Well, I think we could coin a new phrase out of what you just said, a, a covid attical. Yeah. <laughs> a COVID sabbatical? COVID-attical? It's <laughs> something like that. You know, it's, you know, when it first happened, I was like, oh, I, I just, I went into, I'm, I'm going to restart my backyard garden that I kind of let go for like four or five years. And so I got totally into gardening. My wife had wanted chicken. So, you know, we did all the, oh, we need to get a chicken scoop. We need to <laughs> landscape our backyard. You know, and, and as my wife calls, she says, oh, now you're Farmer Bob's. <laughs> like I transitioned out of working photographer into Farmer Bob mode. And then, yeah, so I've, I've had a few other things come up through the summer and the fall here right now. Um, but every time I, I kind of had a chance to get away, something happened. And the most I did was, you know, and I'm watching people online posting all these great shots. I mean, I've seen your Colorado mountain shots. I've had friends that have gone off to Glacier and up into Washington. I'm just sitting there. You know, it's tough because I'm, I'm biting my lip. Um, and the most I did was I got to go up to my father-in-law's 
house up in Ashland, Oregon, which was not a bad place, but I got to hang out and have coffee with Sean Bagshaw. <laughs> you know, we did, we, we sat and talked coffee and just walked through the park, but that was just, you know, that, that was kind of like, just like the travel highlight of my year so far. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I want to go back to um, <clears throat> what you said earlier about uh, early on in your career when you decided to become a stay-at-home dad. So, so was your your wife was pretty much supporting you guys through that period of time? Is that how that worked out uh, for you? Well, su- surprisingly, you know, she she is still an invaluable asset to me in terms of letting me be able to do what I did with my photography. And the way it worked out was, uh, she had actually been working for AT and T and as a contractor. And this was way back when, uh, during the late 90s, during a hiring freeze. And I think she was one of 40-some-odd people applying for two open positions. And I said, you know what? Don't tell me when you've got the job. I just want to walk in and see a bottle of champagne sitting on the counter. And sure enough, one day I walk in and there's a bottle of champagne sitting on the counter. I'm like, yeah, you got this job. She became a full, uh, you know, AT&T employee, all the big corporate company benefits. And she instantly told me that, yeah, she can't have any. About an hour after she signed her employment papers, the doctor called and said she was pregnant with our first child. And wow, what a day. Yeah, no kidding. And my, you know, at my job, I was getting, you know, $60 in cash every two weeks for my entire healthcare package. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, she had the big, massive corporate benefits job. And so I'm like, you know, we both decided, you know, we wanted someone to stay home at the kids. And I was not ashamed to just throw up my hand and say, I'll do it. And shortly after, I mean, literally within 24 hours, 18 hours, my wife was still in the hospital after the birth of my son. And I came home and found a message on my machine from someone I had contacted like three months before to, you know, just buy one print for a health club. And they wound up buying like 40 mural prints to deck out this entire new health club. So for the first year of my professional career, I was like, I I had a couple nice sales and I threw my feet up on the desk and I hauled my son out in his, you know, little car carrier seat to Starbucks. (laughs) That's awesome. That's, that's how my own you know, my own personal photography career got started. Uh, you know, I, I, I gave up. the. It was a great job I had. And I, I know we'll touch base on that. But that's how my freelance career started at, um, within, I don't know, maybe two or three months after my son was born, I got my first book contract. And that just started the snowball rolling. That's so cool, man. Um, I feel like I have 45,000 questions to ask you right now because I really want to know about how that book process went too because I think that's kind of like the the dream for a lot of photographers. But let's let's dial the time clock back a little bit and talk Ooh, about – yeah, let's, let's talk about how you got into managing the image library for none other than Galen Rowell who oh. I think – I don't know. I Maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I think – 
there is a lot of landscape photographers that find Galen Rowell's work to be probably some of the most inspiring, probably of this, uh, I don't know, half century. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, as a genre and, and it's, it's surprising because nowadays there are, you know, there's a growing base of photographers that don't even recognize his name, you know, or right. where the evolution of the genre came from and how it evolved into what it has become today. And Galen was probably the absolute leading forefront for this sense of, uh, he used to call it participatory landscape photography. You know, he, he would say, you know, photography is an action sport, and the guy was like a triple-A battery. Uh, so basically, as I said, I had been a cook, and I'd been a cook for probably close to 10 years, all the way since, you know, um, while I was still in high school. And I was just so sick of it, I started applying for every job I could find. Uh, you know, secretariat, an adoption agency, a telemarketer. I mean, I didn't care what the deal was as long as it was just nine to five Monday through Friday, I'll be fine. You're and like, I'm not- so you're like, I'm so tired of flipping pancakes. Oh yeah. No, it's not, no kidding. I, you know, I'm good at it, but it was not <laughs> what I wanted to do. We'll have to trade recipes. Yeah. And, and so what, one job I applied for just said outdoor photo agency must love dogs. And so I threw out an application and wham, bam, you know, I got a call to come in and I showed up at this little doorway uh, on Solano Avenue in Albany, California, which is here just near Berkeley, California. And I instantly recognized the name and the logo that was hanging over the door because Kalen had this great, you know, mountain logo. And the only reason I recognized it because one of the only photographers whose shows I had ever gone to see other than an Ansel Adams exhibit was Gail and Rowell's mountain light exhibit in, um, at that time it was the California Academy of Sciences. And I'm like, Oh, this, this can't be. And I walked in, I got the interview and they, you know, they were like, uh, so what do you want to do? And again, I had no interest in being a photographer and that was apparently the right thing because uh, they had been burned by other photographers in the past. And if you walked in there and said, I want to be a photographer and I want to do what you do, your resume would hit the trash can so fast there'd be flames coming off of it. <laughs> they, they, I mean, they literally want, we want someone to be in the office and run the slide library and deal with our clients and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, great. And so I literally, I, I, got hired by them. Um, the only reason I ever got was um, the office manager said, well, your resume had some, you know, she called it fairy dust on it, but I never got a clear answer of why they chose me. <laughs> and yeah, on my first day at work, I, I think I'm the only person I know who's done this, but I asked for and got a raise on my first day of work because I was taking a dollar an hour cut from being a cook. It's <laughs> <I was> like... <laughs> can we meet in the middle? And so, yeah, they did. They gave me a raise on my first day of work. Nine days later, I went off on my three week honeymoon to Hawaii. And, you know, I was just this little, you know, at that time it was $7 an hour just to file slides when they came back from the clients. 
And I had been exposed to all this great photography. And I went off to Hawaii with my little manual Minolta X370, like 10 rolls of color Kodak Chrome or Kodak print film and said, I'm going to be the next Gale and Ralph. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, the, the, the shots I took were absolute crap. But I got back to work after my honeymoon and they had basically, you know, literally 8.30 in the morning, I walk in the door and the office manager said, uh, Barbara and Gail need to see you in the office right away. Oh, this can't be good. And I walk into the office and they're like, yeah, you, you probably notice everybody in the photo department's not here. They're not going to be here. Uh, we fired them all while you were on your honeymoon. Do you think you can run this department? And I was like, sure. <laughs> They wow. gave me a 90-day probation period, and that lasted almost 10 years. I ran his image library of about, at the time, closing on 400,000 images, no computer database. And so I had put committed like all of those images to my head. So, you know, it was it was a great job and it literally got me started at the absolute height of the profession. And I had practically never shot a roll of color film before I started working there. And before I left, I was helping teach some of the workshops. So it was, it was a good, good type of schooling, real world schooling. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Cause I, I was really curious to learn about how, Galen and his work and his personality and the way he thinks about photography or thought about photography, I guess I should say, how did that, how did that rub off on you and translate into how you see yourself as a photographer? Well, I think one of the great things, you know, and I had just put up a blog post about working with kind of film images. And as far as Galen was concerned, and the primary lessons that I took away as I started helping assist, and I think it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe about three dozen of his workshops over the years that I either, you know, assisted at or worked through. And the biggest takeaway I kept getting was learning to see like film. So being able to kind of visualize how the three-dimensional world that you're seeing is going to translate to a two-dimensional medium. But not only that, because this was long before digital cameras and LCDs. And, you know, you could be weeks between the moment you took the photo, and saw it for the first time once it was developed. This whole idea, it was like learning a foreign language. And you had to become fluent in that foreign language so that you could look at a scene and sort of know that right off the bat, this in instinctive, intuitive sense that this will work as a photograph. And he also used to mention, and I think it was Art Wolf who said, you know, one of the hallmarks of a great photographer is knowing what photo not to take. <laughs> and so that you could get out in the field and, you you know, when you're starting out, you're just so wildly enthusiastic. You're, you're click, 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 click. You're trying to take pictures of everything because you just don't know how it's going to come out. And you're just kind of hoping for the lottery that you get some happy accidents. 
And as you learn the process of how does the tra- the the camera take this three-dimensional world and translate it into two dimensions, you can start figuring out those little elements and tri- uh, tricks and techniques that will help that translation process mm-hmm. so that when a viewer looks at your image, they know exactly and instantaneously what you as a photographer was trying to communicate. And I kind of took that and molded that out. And then one of the things I teach in my own workshops and with my own private clients is this idea of, you know, we seem to forget that photography is a communication medium that every picture you take, and I don't care what it's of, it's telling a story. And your goal is to get that story as clear and clean as instantaneous so that it just jumps off the page. Or in this case, you know, I used to pull out sheets of 20 slides and you, you know, I'm whipping through these and I would know within less than a second or two whether there was any image on that sheet of 20 slides I even wanted to take a closer look at. Because even though they're all the size of a postage stamp, the ones that worked where there was a real connection between the photographer and the subject, that story, you know, it would just jump right off the light box. And you'd go, yeah, that's the one. Mm -hmm. And photo editors would have that same sort of reaction. So it's kind of cluing in on, on how to use the medium to really communicate what you as a photographer are seeing what you're interested in, and what you are trying to relate to a viewer. So that's that was, you know, that was kind of my takeaway. And when I am teaching, I, I'm the first one to give Gail an all due deference to, you know, uh, my boss used to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was curious, you know, now that <clears throat> probably 95% of people are shooting digital, you know, and probably come home with way too many photographs to like pick from what what would you how would you say that that kind of way of thinking translates into the digital world in terms of photo selection and like developing a long-term portfolio sure well so there there are a couple different ways one that uh, even back then galen used to say film is cheap so don't not shoot because you're worried about the cost, you know, and that was the days when, you know, it was $5 to buy the roll of film and another $5 to develop it. And you'd get 36 frames. Nowadays, I'm like, pixels are even cheaper. (laughs) (laughs) And and that kind of combines with what he says. Uh, He used to say to his workshop class was, if it looks good, shoot it. If it looks better, shoot it again. So you, you don't really need to kind of walk around and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, um, uh, uh, self-limiting in terms of what. So in that regard, it gives you freedom to kind of play and move. And that's one of the things I think some people do. I tell people, you know, people talk about, well, you need to learn how to bracket exposures. And I was like, well, you can also learn how to bracket shutter speeds. You can learn how to bracket your depth of field. 
a lot of people plant themselves in a spot and they take their photos from five feet, four inches off the ground. And they only, you know, it's like they step in this magic spot and you go like, you know, if you move 18 inches to the left and about a foot down and slant your camera, you know, it's like, oh, I can right. move. I can try different things. I can I can try putting elements in different ways. So in that regard, you know, the the playful aspect is almost unlimited because it's not costing you anything. And I do play. I mean, I you know, I've got one of the um, Nikon D eight hundred series cameras, and even as the megapixels increase, I find I'm not bracketing as much for exposures anymore because the sensors are so good i'm bracketing to make sure i got a sharp shot right because any little flaw in your shooting technique can result in a fuzzy image but pixels are cheap so you know shoot away but the goal is still try and use whatever movement whatever playing whatever you know free reign you have on your shutter finger to really just kind of cohesively condense your story down into what I call like the prime factor of elements, you know, getting rid of some stuff, adding other stuff, you know, twisting and changing the perspective and stuff like that. So that's, that's kind of how I I look at that. Well, that makes sense. I want to go, I want to go back a little bit and talk a little bit more about uh, Galen Rowell, because um, I heard you speak on another podcast and I enjoyed that, but I felt like one of the things that was missing from that conversation was to kind of just talk about what it was like to work with Galen and what he was like as a person. Um, because, you know, oftentimes it's it's so funny. People are emailing me frequently about guest suggestions and things like that because of the quality of their photography. And that's really cool. But you know, one of the things that I really enjoy about my podcast is like, I want to get to know the person, you know, their work is cool. That's great. But like, let's get to know that person. And you're probably one of the only people I know that has that bridge to Galen who died in 2002. So what what was he like? Uh, yeah. As a yeah. <laughs> All right. So I, I can tell you this, Um, you know, like, like any person, he had his, his, you know, ups and downs and good and bad, but the easiest way I can describe it for people and especially like from you and your background in uh, psychology, I'm going to use this term. You'll understand it immediately. You've heard of type A personalities. <laughs> Absolutely. Galen was type triple A. <laughs> wow. I, I, I mean, the guy was, you know, I, like the, was that slogan of, the slogan of Red Bull gives you wings. Galen was like the person who was like, yeah, I threw down a six pack of Red Bull for breakfast. <laughs> he never really stopped working. I mean, I remember his, his wife, Barbara, just like blasting him at one time because it's like, you can't ever take a trip and not take pictures. And she dragged him off to Mexico once and he snuck cameras into his... <laughs> luggage he was always writing you know barbara his wife was the kind of business success behind galen she was an incredible force mayor of 
just business savvy. And she came out of marketing from the North Face where she used to work. So with that, Galen put a lot of his time into writing and stuff like that. He was incredibly detail-oriented. He was a fantastic writer, um, a great person. And, I, you know, there's so many times that people would come into an office and, you know, they'd be really kind of intimidated. And Galen would pop around the corner like, hey, how you doing now, George? You know, and it would talk like 20 minutes to someone. And eventually we'd kind of have to go out there and go like, uh, Galen, uh, there's a call for you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, Drag him away. He was very, very personal. And that happened a lot. Uh, you know, just it was like people always found him so much more giving of his time. And of course, there were times where, you know, he didn't have that luxury and, you know, he could be a little short. If you weren't detailed oriented in your work, yeah, those flames were going to be on you pretty quick. So that, you know, it's like, I don't care what you do as long as you're paying attention to the details. And another great example was I remember uh, they had taken a workshop down on the Inca Trail. And this great story was that, you know, Gail was like, yeah, I'm just going to go run up that mountain. I'll be back in time for dinner. And he just took off at like, you know, 10,000 feet or whatever the uh, Andes are. And he just ran up this one mountain. And then Barbara's waiting. It's dinner time. Galen's not back. And she's getting a little upset. All right. Everybody's eating. And Galen's still not back, and Barbara's getting upset and nervous. People have finished eating dinner, and Barbara is somewhere between fuming and starting to get really nervous. About a half hour later, just when it is, you can barely see anything, Galen comes breezing into camp. Barbara literally thought he had died, and she was... (laughs) <laughs> he died and fell off a trail and oh my god everything's ruined and Galen comes back like yeah everything's fun everything's great and Barbara just launched into him what the <laughs> hell were you doing and Galen was like well once I got up to that first peak I saw that second peak and, and then when I got done with that I went to this third peak you know so he's literally summiting three different peaks running on his own on an afternoon in the Inca Trail just because he can. And I, I, I dig that. That sounds like something crazy <laughs> I would do. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, it, it, he was like that. And, you know, he's like, yeah. You know, he ran um, up and down Mount Whitney in a day. You know, his, his accomplishments. He was one of the first people to climb uh, Mount McKinley in a day. You know, he did a winter circumnavigation of Mount McKinley, you know, uh, winter trek through the Karakoram in the Himalaya. You know, it, he he was just turbocharged more than any other person I met. But he was very, you know, a, a wonderful and gregarious spirit and was, you know, loved teaching and talking about photography and the environment. What was he like... Um in the field as a photographer like what was what did you get out of watching him work yeah you know it was really interesting because you know on some of the workshops you know he he would just like he'd take two or three of the most kind of like physical amped up 
workshop students and he'd go like <laughs> take off off a hill and leave us to teach the rest of the class. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, but that's just the way he was. He just, you know, his motor was always driving, you know, and he he didn't have um, you know, sometimes he would literally just kind of like butt into, you know, someone's like shooting a thing. It's like, oh, that looks good. <laughs> just come right up and start shooting. You know, he's he's just very, very spontaneous and he'd move from, you know, scene to scene to scene to scene. But he always seemed to have a sense of what he was trying to get out of any particular location. Um, Mm -hmm. So if workshoppers were in the way, you know, but that's the goal is he wanted to be able to show them what, uh, you know, the the activity of shooting, you know, um, and I know, you know, Guy Tall and Guy and I had a very big discussion about this once, you know, Guy's very like, I'm not going to shoot during my workshop. But part of the problem was, you know, it's like that takes away from showing your students how you as the professional see. Yes. And that was that was one of those great points is at the end of those workshops that the students could see just how Galen caught it or mm-hmm. you know, whoever the instructor has to be. That in itself is a great learning and teaching element that they want to see what you're doing in the field how you're working and how you captured it so that the difference between what they saw and what the leader saw, uh, in this case, Galen, you know, teaching moments are to be had there. And he always did. And, you know, sometimes the, the students regular as clockwork, you know, they'd come away with something that none of us, including Galen saw. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. at other times, you know, Galen would, would get something and you know he all his <laughs> stars and stripes would just shine because everyone would just sit there with their mouth open going wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally why he was so great at what he did yeah that's so cool yeah about about the workshop aspect i mean i think there's i think of a balanced approach of of showing people what you see and then also sticking around and helping people. I think that's a very good approach in terms of balancing those two things, because I think there's value in, in both of those approaches. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. So. I, and, and I actually try to make that clear with my, when I'm doing my own workshops and I'll say, you know, yeah, you'll, you will see me in a ca- uh, with a camera in my hand and here are these times. One, I'll be trying to demonstrate something. Two, I'll be taking pictures of you. Because I like taking pictures of my workshop students doing photography. <laughs> I like throwing that into the critique. But then again, I also say, I also want to get some stuff that I can show you in the critique. And I'm honest with them. And I'll say, look, you know, for me, and, and without trying to kind of throw any errors on, I'm like, I'll just be taking snapshots. I mean, it's like, if I see something, I'll line it up. And in 10, 15 seconds, bam, I got what I need. And I'm moving on to help the students. And so I make it clear to them. I'm like, you know, never assume if I've got a camera in my hand that you shouldn't approach me or ask me questions. But yeah, absolutely. That is part of what I want. And I know, and we all know that there are workshop teachers and leaders out there who use workshops and have for the last decade or so as their primary means to going out and taking pictures for themselves. 
And I'm just like, yeah, no. <laughs> and so literally, I mean, I can still snap away, at, you know, a few snapshots, but that, you know, I, I don't want to deprive that difference of, you know, being able to see how my vision works in a scene that we all have a shared experience about. And and that's one of the great reasons why these, you know, workshops, field workshops and critique sessions are probably what still, I think, one of the best ways of learning photography. Yeah, definitely. Well, you've been uh, doing this for quite a few years. What are some of the other realities of making it as a professional in in these in these times wow uh well because the times they haven't been changing um (laughs) it's really interesting so i when i first started out i i was almost entirely uh dealing with stock photography and some print sales and if anyone asks me nowadays should i get involved with stock photography uh you know i'm like as an income stream, mm, no. In fact, I've pretty much stopped feeding my agents images because the way the value for the photography changed with the digital revolution, it just plummeted. The, I mean, the bottom fell out because now it wasn't this, you know, it took a lot of work and skill and money to go out and create professional level images and deliver them to clients and agents. And starting probably, you know, 2008, 2010, 2012, um, there was just a really magnetic shift in the marketplace. And, you know, it was interesting because I saw it happen that photographers just jumped out of the stock market uh, the stock photo industry, I call it like, you know, rats jumping on a wooden plank <laughs> during a sinking ship. And unfortunately, that wooden plank was like called workshops. <laughs> <laughs> and true, so pretty soon true. it was like every photographer, you know, and that was one of the things I had was I just, you know, for a long time, I just kept saying I didn't want to make photographers my market. You know, it's still more interested in the users and the buyers. But because of my background with um, working with Galen and the Image Library, I mean, I had literally started my career for the first decade literally working as a photo editor. Mm -hmm. You know, I was learning photography, but, you know, learning how to pull images and set images for a uh, specific sort of use or what a client was asking for. Uh, was a great skill that has actually continued to translate because I've worked doing photo research and photo editing for publishers, um, uh, you know, different magazines, private companies and stuff like that. And so that's a, that's a great joy that, you know, not a lot of photographers get to kind of employ. So still a lot of it is, you know, these days kind of segmented between workshops and I think probably what I will call safely uh, the newer genre of uh, high-end luxury prints, you know, following on the Peter Lick kind of model of business. Sure. And, you know, so a lot of the photo workshops deal with, you know, very kind of iconic locations. And I, I call it like the low-hanging fruit Um 
And uh, again, I was, go back. I, I got to sit in on a workshop with um, Guy Tao and, and his partner, um, Michael Gordon in Death Valley. And I was like, you know, what kind of personal vision do you teach someone at Zabriskie Point? <laughs> you know, it's just like point your camera out there is the same idea of, you know, workshops going to the Snake River Overlook and the Tetons or Oxbow Bend or, you know, it's like it, it's really easy to go to these grand landscape places and say, point your camera out there. But I don't think it really translates in the learning for the people that's like, OK, well, what do I do when I'm not? in front of one of these huge grand landscapes. Yeah, dude. I mean, whoo, you struck a chord with me because, um, I mean, you can teach something else because, so back in February, I taught it out of Yosemite. Mm -hmm. And um, the way that was structured was I got to, I had the opportunity to teach uh, four different mornings at Tunnel View. Yeah. And, with no clouds, no fog, no snow, nothing. <laughs> and actually, what that ended up being was a really fantastic opportunity to show the workshop clients, like, hey, you know, yeah, this is an epic landscape. This is iconic. You know, it's Ansel Adams, all those things. Like, you want that photograph. That's why those people wanted to go there, right? They want that image for themselves, I think. Yeah, trophy. You know, they're not there to learn initially, I don't think. You know, initially they want they want that photo. But, you know, when the conditions are not perfect, which, you know, this is landscape photography. Yeah. Conditions are never perfect. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say never, but very rarely. And so what I was able to do is I was able to show people like, okay, get your telephoto lens out. Uh, let's zoom in on the face of El Capitan and like in five minutes, the sun is going to come up and it's going to just scrape the sides of El Cap. And you're going to have these really interesting patterns of light. Let's focus on that. Oh, look over here. There's some like, there's a rim of light on the ridge over there. So I think you can teach personal vision at iconic locations. But I oh, think, absolutely. Yeah. But it, I think that's not why people go to those places to teach. And I don't think that's why people take those workshops. <laughs> yeah. But, and that's, that's a great point because, you know, you go to a spot like that and the weather doesn't cooperate. Um, the learning process then becomes about problem solving and adapting your expectations and, you know, using kind of your intuition, like when you said, Oh, the, the sun is going to rise there. And I, you know, I, as a landscape photographer, you make uh, a, a great point there. You know, people always ask, you know, well, what's your favorite lens? And when you're a landscape photographer, you can, you know, people are expecting you to say, well, it's my 14 to, you know, 24 millimeter lens. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's my telephoto. <laughs> <laughs> because you can just hone in, you know, on the, these great details that when you're looking at the big picture, it, it just, you know, or if that's what's stuck in your head is this big picture and the big picture just ain't right. And that was, um, that wasn't kind of an exactly another thing I, I wound up getting from Galen was this idea that, you know, if the light isn't right, 
shoot where it is. You know, cha- you know, if if you're sitting there waiting for a grand sunset and the clouds are there, doesn't mean you don't have to take pictures, but your grand landscape isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. You just need to adapt where it is. And if the light's not in spot A, but it is in spot B, even though you came to shoot spot A and you've been dreaming about spot A and you're envisioning a nice, big, beautiful print of spot A up on your wall, but the good light is on spot B. If you don't photograph that, you've missed your golden opportunities. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, um, it took me forever to figure that out. I don't know how many times I went to a place, you know, looking for photograph A. Light was terrible. And I just I just hiked out, you know, like I didn't even take any photos. So, yeah, man, being open to what nature gives you is, I think, right there is how you develop a personal vision. I mean, yeah. it's, it's being open exactly and being in tune you know it's just like uh you know and there there are uh a few things i mean i know i got so much from Caleb, but i have managed to come up with like one or two things of my own and one thing i always tell in my classes i'm like uh, you know a great subject in boring light will never be as good a photograph as a boring subject in great light you sit there and you look at Yosemite Valley, and if if the light is just crap, it's not going to translate on film. Mm-hmm. But you can get amazingly great sunset light on a park bench <laughs> and create this amazing emotional photograph that people like, oh, God, I wish I could just sit there for hours. Totally. Or you could, maybe there's bad light or dull light or diffuse light. Maybe there's a different subject that actually works really well with that kind of light. That, exactly. So that <laughs> I almost Look have. Down. A, <laughs> yeah, I have the transverse reaction. I'm like, okay, the light's not that good in the sky or in the mountains, but that means that there's other things that aren't going to be as harsh that I can look for. So yeah, yeah, I think. It, I don't know. It just takes time to see the world that way as a photographer, and it is but a learning be, process again. You got to be open to it, though. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, part of that, and I I can do a little segue here as to where some of the landscape photography has gone. You know, and um, I I have to give Mark Adamus all due credit in terms of, I don't think anyone has kind of reshaped the genre of landscape photography the way he did. And I watched him literally kind of come up through the ranks on um, NPN. And we once spent like, I think four or five days together up on the North coast. And we barely spent any time taking pictures. We played pool, (laughs) you know, and talked, talk pool and talk cooking and you know and then occasionally yeah we'd grab a camera and go off and take pictures but he created such powerful visions and this was kind of it started with galen and i think it kind of has transmutated uh especially with mark and then i, I call them that you know the atomist clones it's it, but it's a whole school of of kind of how you visualize and create, especially digital, um, that it just it really keeps driving home this 
epic, 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 epic. And then if it's not epic, oh, it's not good. You know, or it's like, oh, I, if, it, if it's not epic, it's not going to get the likes that I need or, you know, that, that kind of positive validation. And there are a lot of photographers out there that go and take, you know, it's like learning how to trophy hunt. You know, they, they want to get the epic. And then there's this whole other half um, that I've kind of been, you know, especially as I'm getting older, because I can't go and do what Mark does. I couldn't do what Galen does. I can't even climb the mountains the way you do. And so I'm just like, you know, those kind of summit sunrise shots, you know, 14,000 feet, yeah, they, they can go there. But it, it to me, it kind of plays on a set of expectations that people go out when they're, they're learning, you know, and some people are very, very wowed and they want to learn the process to get those wows. But then there's this whole other area and genre of photography and nature photography that is kind of, you know, I, I call it much slower, you know, more intimate. And, you know, it's kind of sad that I see that kind of being, you know, kind of put off to the side a little bit because it doesn't get the visual recognition as, you know, these grand mountain landscapes with the the moving clouds and, you know, it's the, the light and the purple and magenta and stuff. And, you know, it's beautiful artwork. I see it all the time. But it does. It kind of sets this heightened expectation for what landscape photography should be. Mm-hmm. And I'm always trying to kind of like, especially if I see someone going in that direction, I don't dissuade them. Absolutely not. Because I mean, if would that I could, (laughs) but as I, you know, don't necessarily just kind of, like I said, follow because that's where the bright lights are leading you because then everything else kind of becomes not really worthy. And I'm like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's that's just kind of a sad thing that you should be able to photograph, you know, the small, the intimate, the quiet, um, you know, and and connect with nature on those those quiet moments, because that literally makes up half the experience, actually, probably more than half. It probably makes 80 percent of the experience while you're out in nature waiting for that one split moment of everything's going to come fabulously together. And so I kind of like just, you know, I try and keep people, you know, make it a balance, go, go in with, you know, look for one, but while you're waiting for that to happen, work at this other sense of, you know, smaller details, even if it's like tree bark. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because my, (laughs) it's so funny because um, I definitely fell into that, that I don't want to say trap. But, we all do it. I mean, I think because it, they they are so dramatic, right? And I think over the last three years, I've I've kind of grown to take the opposite approach. Like, I seek out the smaller stuff now, and if the grand, epic, insane shot materializes, that's cool. But if it doesn't, that's also cool. And I've also come to appreciate that the fact that I mean, and this is a fact. I I mean, I don't think anyone can dispute this is that most of those most of those crazy epic shots that we see from those people are not as epic as you think they are when you actually look at the raw file yeah they've they've been heavily 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 manipulated in lightroom and photoshop 
digital so, art, you know, and, and I, I, I just call them fantasy scapes. That I mean, they're they are beautiful. They are landscapes, but yeah, exactly like you've said, I've seen, and generally, you know, most of photographers that kind of work in this genre are not just going to go out and show you their raw file because they don't want you to know, you know, or they're selling. Um, you know, either either exotic trips or processing tutorials or something like that. Right. But uh, it's, you know, it, it's... I mean, unfortunately, what it does, though, for people like me anyway, is like it's set up this false expectation of yourself that like that's what landscape photography should be. Um, and then you're forever chasing these moments that actually never were achievable yeah and and i mean very rarely i mean i i shoot quite a bit and i will say the types of shots that you see from those those people they're incredibly rare to happen organically and so and i i will just say like i happen to know like talking to people that have taken those workshops like those aren't those things never happen the way that you see them on the computer screen those are very heavily curated um, composited images with a lot of, you know, digital artistry that's been added in, which is, you know, the end result is mind blowing and it's fantastic artwork, but I think it does create this weird, um, false sense of expectation from other photographers that, I don't know, I don't, I just don't think people should have that expectation when they're going out into well, the field. I, and I completely agree. And there is, um, you know, there is a natural tendency when people are learning to really kind of go after the, and, and strive for those things and completely natural. I think at some point we've all done that. I did this too. Um, and one of the things I, I kind of separate it and, you know, I, I love chasing the light as a photographer. And I like doing this. Like you said, I, I've made it my thing to be like, I don't want to construct an image. So whatever I show is like, you know, it's pretty much like one shot <laughs> in the camera. You know, I've only just started doing HDR shots like within the last year because <laughs> yeah. Lightroom got good at making it look natural, but pretty much was like, you know, what was there was what was there. And there's kind of a, a, a balance between, you know, at some point we all want to go and get our trophy version of what we've seen and what we like. And that's part of the natural learning curve. And it should always be encouraged. But I, I think it's kind of like, you know, don't do it with blinders on. And so I, I always kind of make a differentiation between chasing the light and chasing the likes, L-I-K-E-S. <laughs> right 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 and sadly that's you know i i know a photographer i met in person once that you know he basically said my goal is to just crush it on instagram and to his credit he did he's he made some great shots and he's he's just killed it but it always kind of stuck with you know this little kind of barbed arrow going that's just it just seemed like a little bit of a sad goal because it, it you're chasing the affirmation versus the experience that what you know hopefully we're all trying to do out there is you know commune with nature and capture our own personal vision of it versus trying to ooh and ah and wow if we yes. do ooh and ah and wow that's all great but that shouldn't necessarily 
be the end all be all goal of what we're doing out there. Yeah. I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I'd be curious to hear what you think about this. When, when I was um, chasing those epic scenes like that and trying to emulate the popularity of other people and, you know, make photographs that I knew people would like, I found that it heavily detracted from my experience in the moment. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I, be, because I, there, there's just, I, I, the only thing that's kind of coming to my mind as, as uh, you know, is like a false prophet or, you know, something like uh, a hollow, um, you know, kind of token thing that, oh, we, we, we get it. We did it. And yay for us. And then we're on to the next thing. And you're kind of like back at scratch going, okay. And, and eventually you start having to ask yourself, you know, repeat the cycle, repeat the cycle, repeat the cycle. Why am I doing this? Repeat the cycle, repeat the cycle, repeat the cycle. No, no, seriously. Why am I doing this? And, you know, if, like I said, if you're making photographers your market or you're out for selling that, uh, it all, you know, it, it does come with its rewards. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, especially if you're doing it as a professional, you know, and you target what the market wants. And you've got all these photographers that are kind of, you know, like following the Pied Piper. That's all great. But eventually the Pied Piper song loses its luster and you realize, okay, it's time for me to go find my own way. And that's just part of the natural learning curve. No, I agree. And I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing those things. Mm -hmm. I just feel like, um, I wish I could, I just don't bother putting in the time to do the computer or the field work to construct an image. <laughs> it's like, I, I'm yeah. I, I don't master plan that well. And if it takes me more than five minutes of image processing time, I'm already getting frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to shift gears a little bit, sure. but also kind of tie back to something we were talking about before. So, um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, um, and I think you also have noticed in landscape photography over the years, is that, is that there's a lot of competitiveness in this field. Yeah. And, you know, there's probably lots and lots of reasons for that. But I was super curious to get your take on kind of what is the relationship between the competitiveness in landscape photography with how the business side of landscape photography has evolved? Because I'm really curious to know mm. if, if it was that competitive prior to image licensing kind of dying off, like and now people are competing for a smaller piece of the pie that kind of all looks the same in terms of workshops and and prints like has did you see that competitiveness kind of get born out of that or was it around before that also what what are your thoughts on that you, you know interestingly no i thinking back now and oh gosh here we go 25 <laughs> years 30 years um, pull, pull, pull up a seat kids yeah <laughs> listen as your grandpappy tells a story um <laughs> no i i never got the real sense of the competitive aspect early on because again there was this differentiation before the digital revolution 
that, you know, you really kind of had to earn your salt as a professional. And so that kind of kept the field very narrow. You know, if you wanted to go learn from a top pro, there were probably, you know, three or four dozen that you could kind of choose from across the country and that were doing these kind of workshops. And as far as the photo editors and photo marketplace went, you know, at that time, you know, you would have to send slides. And if you weren't shooting slides, you weren't really in the industry, (laughs) Um, you know, except for the fine art print marketplace. But for the general publishing arena, you know, you had to be doing it right. You needed to, to kind of cultivate uh, clients that knew your work, that knew your work was quality, then that you were able to deliver, whether it was from stock or from assignment, the sort of thing that they would. And that time, photographers, and I think there's still a few of these sources out there, but they would have to pay, you know, $5,000 for a page advert in these source books that photo editors and art buyers would get. Uh, Your stock agents would choose images that they want. You couldn't just say, oh, I'm going to upload these and sell these. Um, At that time, there wasn't any royalty-free market, but that was just starting to come out. And as that market happened, uh, you kind of saw a little bit of flux in the quality um, overall. So the royalty-free was maybe not as good quality. Mm-hmm. But as more and more people started becoming into the marketplace, the quality in that area rose. And so, you know, it was like uh, when assignment photographers were the primary go-to industry source and then stock photographers came around – the assignment photographers were pissed. Those stock photographers, they're stealing all our business. And then, you know, that was, it started out with rights managed stock photography. And then the royalty free guys came out and all the rights managed stock photographers were like, those royalty free people, they're going to take all our business. And then micro stock happened and the digital revolution. And suddenly, you know, iStock is there and Dreamstime and Shutterstock. And just, you know, kind of, you hear a toilet flushing in the background as the market just kind of went down the drain. I think the competition, at least as far as landscape photography, really kind of started. One, that you saw the quality going up for much lower prices. So your, Mm -hmm. you know, your, your amount of revenue per the effort you were putting in was sliding downhill. Mm-hmm. But that's when all those photographers kind of jumped ship and started doing the workshops. And that's when you saw the competitiveness going up. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the competitiveness in landscape photography was really born out of, you know, the amount of supply of quality photography going up and up and up. And also the demand for high quality photography going down. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that, that, because it was just much easier to find, it was much, you know, as, as the digital photography era evolved and people were learning and Hey, we can fix it in Photoshop or we can make it in Photoshop. (laughs) Didn't require the skill level of working in the fields, but it also brought about a point where, you know, Clients were getting overwhelmed with 
so many choices, um, you know, suddenly it became good enough and cheaper was good enough. You know, mm-hmm. they they didn't necessarily want to pay more for quality or the amount of clients that are willing to spend, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars on good quality started diminishing because a lot of them said, well, you know, it may not be as good, but it's good enough. And, you know, it costs, you know, fractions of, right. of what some other people would charge. And so that was a big thing. And then the other thing I saw was, you know, it started with the online and the photo sharing. And I I just call it the, you know, pat on the back likes and stuff like that in that, you know, from the non-professional side, um, they kind of rose together, you know, uh, were teaching workshops. Sure, there's a growing number of photographers coming in to the digital marketplace, but you only have so many people teaching workshops. And then you start having people, you know, teaching workshops. I picked up my first camera about three years ago, and now I'm teaching workshops. And you just kind of go, oh, dear God. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of those stories before. It's like, wow, interesting. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's just kind of neighbors. So, the you know, the pie is growing in size. But the number of people trying to slice up that pie has grown exponentially larger. Mm-hmm. Well, with all that in mind, I would be really curious to hear your thoughts on, like, if you were starting out today and trying to be a professional, what would your approach be in terms of trying to be a viable uh, business entity? Yeah, you know, surprisingly, and it still gets asked a lot, and um, even way back into the 90s and throughout, you know, the early 2000s and continuing on, and I still keep this as one of my mantras, especially from the first um, uh, time that I really learned about, you know, kind of the business of photography was value your work. I I don't care if you're going to sell for the very first time. You know, that's the big pill to swallow, learning to value your work. And I tell people, and this was something I've also heard others say, is don't be afraid to price your work or your services low because you're worried that someone else may price their work or their services lower because that's a hundred percent guaranteed. You know, it's like, well, I'll sell my image for $25, but I'm, I'm worried about Joe Bob and he's, he's going to sell his for 15. So yeah, maybe I'll sell mine for $12 and 50 cents. And then, you know, Mary Sue comes along and says, Hey, I can sell mine for $10. You know, it's always, going to be some person willing to sell or give away their work for less. So never price or value your work based on the fear that someone's going to price their work cheaper. Let them do that. Even if you don't make the sale, and it's hard to determine what that kind of value is or what you can sleep with yourself at night, you know, if you have to accept a, a price you want to be able to say, you know, my work is worth something to me. 
Because the thing I tell other photographers, if you don't value your work, nobody else will. So you start with that as the ground line, you know, don't sell an eight by 12 inch print for $5 because you saw someone else selling theirs for $5, you know, maybe it's worth a hundred bucks, charge a hundred bucks, you know, or 50 bucks or something like that. Um, you do have to kind of learn where the market is, but use that as your baseline. You know, value your work. Secondly, I would say, you know, it makes sense to kind of do it the old-fashioned way. Because these days with the internet and, you know, eight different sorts of agencies and stuff like this, people are so inundated. And, you know, I'm not sure what the millennial or Gen X photo directors are but you know i learned way back when that Flickr wasn't a professional portfolio instagram i don't think should be considered a professional portfolio there are probably people that use it that way but it shouldn't you know you should have something that's set up that identifies you and yourself and your skills as something unique and then just start figuring out who uses this kind of work and start building individual relationships you know Mm -hmm. don't try and just blast your work out to 500,000 strangers you know pick two or three dozen top people and just start the slow path of saying hey here's what I do I you know really interested but just make sure that you're presenting yourself professionally you know impressions count Uh, if you're going to build a portfolio I say you know Uh, Another great long-standing saying is your portfolio is only as good as your weakest image. (laughs) So don't, you know, don't throw six or seven kind of half-assed, oops, excuse me, that's maybe not PG-13, photos into your portfolio because you think it's better to have 20 than 12. Right. You know, show your best work. And just start showing it to the people that use it and just start making individual contacts. I think that that kind of old-fashioned method is probably the best way to start. You know, as, as you develop and become more in tune with the industry and more people start seeing your work, you know, I, I never really gave work away in exchange for a credit line. So I, I recommend people don't do that. I say, you know, if someone offers you exposure for your work, I say, picture yourself standing naked on a glacier in a blizzard because that's what exposure is. Um, I've been doing this now 30 years and I can count on one hand with more than four fingers left the number of times someone said, oh, I saw your work and read your credit line and decided to call you up and buy something. It doesn't happen. Yeah, very rarely. It doesn't happen. So I, that's that's my advice to the people starting out is, you know, kind of, you know, draw a firm line, be confident, show your best work, and, and just you've got to put in the slow steps. I would not advise doing stock, you know, doing something like small local assignments. Don't start saying, oh, I think National Geographic will like this shot I got of a rainbow in my backyard. No, (laughs) but maybe your local chamber of commerce would. Maybe some of your local real estate agents would. 
start on that path. That's that's generally my recommendation. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Awesome, dude. Well, we've been <laughs> flapping our lips for like all, over an hour now. Unbelievable. I know it goes so fast. Um, when you have, have like, yes, and I have like forty more, uh, forty more questions for you, but I don't think we have time for them. You can have me so, back in a year or two. <laughs> there you go. So I would be really curious to hear. Who would you like to hear on the podcast? Who are some people that you would highly recommend that our listeners know about? Sure. Um, I can give a couple names. Um, some friends of mine, specifically, um, it, both in person and online. Um, I, I would start with a gentleman here, uh, my buddy Richard Wong, uh, who does not only great photography, but he is a complete SEO guru. Um, would that I could afford to hire him for consulting, but I'm, I'm probably too much direct competition for him, but I think he could give out some fabulous, you know, um, for people who want to learn about, you know, if they're building websites or putting stuff online, he, he would be great, uh, as an asset for that. Um, uh, the guy that um, Guy Tall teaches in Death Valley with, um, a friend of mine named Michael Gordon, who does absolutely fabulous black and white fine art work uh specializing in like death valley and the mojave desert he does yeah wonderful stuff and yeah uh, uh michael and guy are gonna come on the podcast in january oh gonna... great yeah the more yeah. okay so moving right along <laughs> yeah um i would recommend david hyde uh his his father uh was one of the absolute great um you know monuments in the start of landscape photography as conservation and he also is a writer and photographer in his own right but he knows so much especially because of uh representing his dad's work um about the fine art market mm -hmm. and yep. and another great uh conservation related photographer uh would be robert glenn ketchum who's done just incredible work in terms especially in terms of like some of uh the wilderness uh up in alaska is great and then a couple women um uh, uh who i think just do some fabulous both a combination of landscape travel and wildlife uh first would be Susie esterhaus uh, who does great work. And I know she does stuff with National Geographic and uh, Nevada Weir, who is a fabulous, um, you know, travel photography. She shoots great landscapes, but she, you know, her, her, the way she works and represents people and native cultures um, is a lot like kind of Steve McCurry. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she gets these beautiful portraits uh, of indigenous people and, in their landscapes and uh, native environments. I think she'd be fabulous to have on there as well. And if you're really in for big fish, I would say, oh, uh, if you could hook Franz Lanting. <laughs> I, in fact, I just said this to his wife online, not more than a few weeks ago. Um, I am still 100% convinced that he is by far and away the best natural history photographer on the planet. And, you know, his claim to fame, you know, he, he's been doing this great series um, called Life, but he's also credited with the longest 
lasting uh, or longest National Geographic article, I think, ran 70 pages. Uh, Holy cow. On biodiversity. And one of my greatest photographic moments was he had come into Galen's office and there was Franz and his wife, Chris, and Galen and his wife, Barbara, and the office manager and myself sitting over a table as Franz was laying out the precursor spread to this National Geographic article page by page by page telling us the story of all these photos. And it's like, he just (laughs) couldn't get higher on the the photographic memories in terms of just, you know, wow, what a great moment that was. But he is probably just one of the most inspirational photographers of this planet that I'm aware of. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool, man. Well, dude, this has been so much fun. (laughs) I've loved it. Like I said, it's been my honor. You know, I've listened to so many of your podcasts and yeah, it's just a real treat to actually um, be here talking with you. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks to Gary for the awesome chat. I'm really happy we were able to record this one as it was just such a fun time. Keep up the great work, my friend. Well, hey, listeners, Gary has offered to provide one free portfolio review for a listener. The first person to email me about this offer will get it. So hurry up, head over to my website at mattpainphotography.com and click on contact. Also, I've been getting asked a lot lately about my private one-on-one photography workshops. If you're interested in learning from me, I am available for a very customized workshop to suit your needs. This VIP experience is tailored to your very specific wants and desires, and I promise it will be a lot of fun. Please find a link in the show notes to learn more about this special opportunity. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.